I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Chinese property giant Evergrande continues to teeter on the brink of collapse. But it's not just Evergrande. The rot in China's banking system goes much deeper. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Henry Trix, The Economist's Schumpeter columnist, and also on today's show, why the challenge of decarbonizing the global economy means economic growth must continue. As attractive as some of the degrowth ideas might be, they fundamentally make it harder for the world to achieve its climate goals. And what does Zillow's calamitous exit from the home buying business reveal about America's housing market? Zillow has so much information, arguably more information than anybody else, about what homes are selling, what are the attributes of those homes. And so their failure to turn all of that informational advantage into ability to forecast short-term prices is pretty remarkable. First, the debt-ridden Chinese property giant Evergrande Group faces another payment deadline on its bonds later today as concerns about liquidity in the Chinese property market increase. Property developers are the main issuers of dollar-denominated junk bonds, which are in convulsion. The average yield has climbed to 24%, much higher than even in the early days of the pandemic. On Monday, America's Federal Reserve warned that financial stresses in China could strain global financial markets, pose risks to global economic growth and affect the United States. The report from America's central bank went on to say that China's business and local government debt remain large. The financial sector's leverage is high, especially at small and medium-sized banks, and real estate valuations are stretched. In the shadow of Evergrande, is there something rotten in the underbelly of China's financial system? China faces big financial risks on many fronts. Of course, everyone has been paying attention to Evergrande and the Chinese property market. But what I've been doing is focusing on an area of the financial system where the risks aren't so clear. This is the world of small and medium-sized banks in China. Don Wineland writes about business and finance in China for The Economist. This Part of the banking system has not been regulated very carefully, and that has led to widespread crony capitalism within these banks. Private investors have invested in lenders and in many cases have used them as as piggy banks to fund their own operations. There's a lot of hidden risks and hidden bad debt the further you, you look In most markets, you would expect this type of activity to be regulated very, very carefully. In China, 
once you get down to the smaller banks, um, it's been pretty much a free for all. So how deep does the rock go? Is this a particularly widespread problem? It's really hard to tell. This is an area we're, we're talking about, you know, well over a thousand city and rural commercial banks. They make up about 32% of the commercial banking system. And it's roughly the size of the British banking system. Evergrande, a couple of years ago, became the controlling shareholder of a, of a bank in northeastern China. According to local press reports in China, you know, Evergrande is being investigated for insider dealings with that bank, uh, something to the tune of 100 billion yuan. H&A, which is a, a very large conglomerate um, that's been taken over by the government recently. A couple of years ago, it was a, a huge private conglomerate that was buying up stakes in Deutsche Bank and in uh, Hilton. It took over a bank seven, eight years ago, also in northeastern China, and essentially ran the bank into the ground. The further you look into this, the more examples you find. And then some of the number crunching that I've done has shown that there is about 20% of the commercial banking system that has very tight links to private companies. And not all of these these private relationships that the banks have are going to prove to be destructive, but in many cases, like the ones I've just highlighted, they can be very bad for corporate governance, very bad for risk controls. Back to Evergrande, the bank that it purchased a large stake in a couple of years ago lent a lot to Evergrande, and it's unclear exactly what would happen to this bank if Evergrande was to face even worse financial problems. So how did this come about? I mean, you, you assume, I guess, we assume that um, a lot of the banks in China are state controlled, clearly not in this case. How did the private sector become involved in this part of the banking system? It's certainly true that the state dominates the biggest banks and it, and it keeps very uh, strict risk, risk controls with these larger banks. So for the smaller ones, I think really the story here is kind of part of a structural problem in the Chinese economy. Private companies have faced trouble getting loans from state banks for a long time. So of course, private companies are looking for other ways of, of getting access to credit so that they can grow. You know, one answer for a long time has been the shadow banking market. You know, they can access funds, but at a very high cost. For some companies, it appears that, you know, one way of, of getting access to credit has been to simply invest in a bank. So if you have a lot of regional and local Chinese banks effectively operating as piggy banks for local tycoons, what's the potential impact of that on the functioning of the broader financial system? What, what are the risks to China writ large? I think there are a couple ways of thinking about this. So one is thinking about individual institutions. Because disclosure at some of these smaller banks is so poor, you know, when, when a bank runs into trouble, you know, the, the local regulators may not be aware of this in time. There's some research that shows that banks across China hide bad debt so that the regulators can't see it. The, the research also shows that the smaller the bank, the more they tend to hide their bad debt. And when, when one of these mid-tier banks explodes, it can have a large impact on, on China. So there was a, a case in 2019 where the government had to step in and essentially take over. And when this happened, the interbank market where you know banks borrow from each other saw a lot of turmoil. Rates for, for borrowing shot up. I don't think these banks often pose systemic financial risk 
But there's another risk, which is that if you have a lot of these problems across China, not even banks collapsing, but just banks with a lot of bad debt, they will naturally have to slow down their, their lending. How does this play into President Xi Jinping's ongoing campaign to sort of limit the power of the private sector in China. The government has been aware of some of these problems for a while. I think in 2019, with the the collapse of Baoshang Bank, it really brought these tycoon banking problems uh, to the attention of regulators. They've announced certain people to be illegal shareholders in banks. Um, They've detained the owners of some of these banks. Again, the tycoon that controlled Baoshang Bank was essentially abducted from Hong Kong in 2017 and taken back to China in order to kind of sort out this financial mess that that he had created. The chairman of what's called a joint stock bank was sentenced to a uh, suspended death sentence last year for similar problems um, that we're seeing now. So they, you know, they're, they're doing all sorts of things. I mean, one of the, one of the problems with coming in and regulating this problem at this point is this can really disrupt the operations of the bank. You know, uh, you might have a run on deposits. So it's a very delicate process. This is a big job and will really create a lot of upheaval among these institutions. How should people outside of China feel about this? Can these risks be contained? I think they can, actually. It's part of a much bigger picture, a very, very large financial system, and of course, the world's largest banking system, where you see a high level of risk that could lead to a bigger problem. If there is, say, the collapse of you know the property sector or of Evergrande, there's a lot of contagion into these smaller banks. The smaller banks are heavily exposed. But most of these banks are not very big. So it is possible for... Chinese regulators, you know, to come in and inject liquidity into troubled banks. They can also come in and make sure that you don't have a private shareholder controlling one of these banks. That is actually considered best practice in many countries. But I think the version that you might see here is an interesting problem in China because private companies have really had a hard time getting a hold of credit. And what they've been doing in terms of investing in small banks, it's kind of a symptom of a state-dominated system. The more that the state takes control, the more distortions you're going to get. And this problem is really only going to repeat itself over time. Well, we'll be hearing more about this, no doubt. Thanks very much indeed, Don. Thank you. To follow developments at Evergrande and keep up with all of our analysis, make sure you subscribe to The Economist. We've been digging into surprisingly high numbers for American inflation that came out today. And we're also looking at why one of America's biggest firms, General Electric, has decided to split itself up into three separate companies. For all that and more, subscribe at economist.com forward slash podcast offer. And that link is in the notes for this episode. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Next. As world leaders in Glasgow hash out plans to tackle climate change, the debate about how to wean the global economy off of carbon is heating up. Some activists believe the task of decoupling economic growth from fossil fuels is simply impossible. This collection of theories has become known as degrowth. But what exactly is meant by the term? What would the impact of degrowing an economy be? And would it be enough to limit global warming? There are different flavors of degrowth theory that circulate, but I think the broader perspective that its advocates put forward is that humankind, as it has grown uh, economically over the past 150 years or so, has placed increasing strain on the Earth's resources, and this isn't sustainable. Uh, And so something has to change. Ryan Avent is our trade and international economics editor. Potentially, that could be population growth, but increasingly, the idea is that it's income growth and economic growth that need to be kept in check if we're going to stay within these climate boundaries. So where did this idea of degrowth spring from? What was it born out of? Well, I think you find its roots in the first stirrings of the environmental movement back in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, You know, this was a period when we saw really rapid growth, both in in population and in, in commodity prices, resource prices around the world. Our riches and our numbers burden the world. And then you had a couple of influential texts like The Population Bomb by Paul and Anne Ehrlich, which appeared in 1968. We're running out of food. We're running out of non-renewable resources. Uh, We're polluting the atmosphere to the point where there's considerable doubt how long we're going to be able to continue breathing it and so on and so forth. Uh, In fact, uh, most of my colleagues and I feel that at the current rate, mankind is probably entering its final crisis. Uh, through over, we're actually we're breeding ourselves into oblivion would be the best way to put it. At the same time, you had increasing pressure placed on governments to start doing things about pollution. Now, you sort of saw some of this momentum subside a bit in the 80s and 90s because we saw resource prices fall. And some of the, the predictions, the most dire predictions made by those texts, you know, failed to come true. We were all supposed to run out of fossil fuels, weren't we? We were. That's, this is what it, people people thought when we experienced the oil shocks and the food price shocks in the 1970s. This is a famous wager made by Paul Ehrlich and the economist Julian Simon about the, the long-run trajectory of resource prices. Rather than natural resources becoming more scarce, as we use them, they have been becoming more available. Julian Simon famously argued that they would fall over time. And and over the, the period of that bet, he turned out to be right. It's the same with iron. It's the same with aluminum. It's the same, you name it, it's the same story that all of the natural resources, and that includes all the foods, wheat and corn and rice, all of them have been becoming more available rather than more scarce, contrary to all common sense, to all standard Malthusian thinking. And so I think there was a relaxation of these concerns, but they've sort of come back in a strong way over the past two decades. And I think that's partly due to the fact that we've seen rising resource prices. And we're indeed, we're seeing them now with what's happened to, to energy costs around the world. But it's also strongly linked to the dawning realization that the world is facing a serious climate crisis. So this is mostly up until now been 
a discussion carried out, I guess, more on the fringes. How close is it becoming to the mainstream? Well, I think that within the sort of climate-aware left, it is increasingly mainstream. It's something that's talked about without much uh, embarrassment. And I suppose the extent to which it's become mainstream depends on what flavor of it you embrace. And so you have sort of a very Marxist interpretation of, of degrowth, which is advanced by people like Andreas Malm, which suggests that we really can't have a sustainable economy without sort of fundamentally taking apart the capitalist, you know, underpinnings of modern society. And in fact, Andreas Malm advocates for violence to be committed or, or, or sort of sabotage to be committed against fossil fuel infrastructure. And I would say that that is not a mainstream point of view. There are a handful of economists who I think support degrowth adjacent viewpoints. And, and so to uh, take a couple examples, there's Kate Rayworth, who's written this book, Donut Economics, which argues that a certain amount of economic growth uh, is important because it raises living standards and well-being, but it shouldn't extend beyond the capacity of the uh, of the Earth's climate to provide a suitable habitat in which economic growth can unfold. And it's sort of related ideas by this Cambridge economist, Partha Dasgupta, who suggests that you know, we receive important services from environmental capital, which is basically functioning ecosystems. What about the critics here? How do academic economists think about degrowth? What's the problem with it? The much more mainstream view within the profession is that if you want people living in the rich world to consume less, there has to be some mechanism to achieve that. Now, you might imagine that degrowthers win this broad moral argument and people all do it voluntarily. But I think probably that's not particularly realistic, which means that at some level you have to impose this on citizens of the rich world. And it may not even be politically possible. So I think it just, in that sense, it's not something that is particularly attractive. Economic growth has raised incomes and living standards, allowed people to live longer and healthier lives. And so we need to be very careful about cutting off that process, given the benefits that it's generated. But also, if the world wants to have an energy transition and get to a place where we're capable of supporting increases in living standards without pumping out more and more greenhouse gases, the only way to do that is through massive investment programs. And the resources you need to generate that investment are going to have to come from a process of economic growth. The, the richer you are, the more productive capacity you have to invest in clean power, to invest in energy grids, to green other parts of uh, of the economy. And so as attractive as some of the degrowth ideas might be, they fundamentally make it harder for the world to achieve its climate goals. As we speak, Ryan, the COP26 summit is wrapping up in Glasgow this week. So how should these arguments inform the negotiations that policymakers are conducting there? There is a temptation to, to say that what we need is a sort of hair shirt politics and that it's time for rich countries to really make some serious sacrifices. But I think it, it doesn't take us necessarily to the place where we want to be. And I, it's important to kind of look back at the last 20 years and note that there's been an enormous improvement in living standards across emerging markets. And the thing that's facilitated that is a process of industrialization, which is really dependent upon them being able to, to sell things to the rich world. And so if people in the rich world embrace this notion of sacrifice to make themselves feel better, it also condemns emerging markets to staying in this low-income world. 
which actually makes them less able to adapt uh, or to invest in a green energy transition. So you want to continue to grow economically, but more production needs to be devoted to the investment side, to investments in green energy and different sources of power generation and things like that. And then the big question for policymakers is what policy tools help you achieve that goal? And certainly at The Economist, we we could argue in favor of of a carbon tax. Carbon tax would suppress consumption of really fossil fuel intensive activities and would also encourage investment in green technologies. That's a really promising route forward if it can get done politically. But whatever policies governments are coming up with, that's the kind of thing they need to be thinking about. Using space within the carbon budget to make the economy greener so eventually we arrive at this point where growth is in fact decoupled from fossil fuel emissions. Brian, so interesting. Thanks very much indeed. Great talking to you. You too, Henry. Take care. And finally, the American housing market has been experiencing an extraordinary and sustained boom. And yet one of the biggest names in American property, Zillow, has lost more than half its value compared with a year ago and is laying off a quarter of its staff. The company had promised to shake up the world's biggest asset market through big data, and it looked like it was working. During lockdown, the escapism of Zillow surfing, that is, trawling through aspirational properties on its app, became a pop culture phenomenon. I need a new fantasy. Then you need Zillow. 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 It even earned its own skit on the comedy show Saturday Night Live. And our listings are just standing by, waiting for you to browse them. An updated colonial with mature landscaping. But though Zillow had no trouble attracting bored millennials to browse its valuations, it has found that applying algorithms to actually buying and selling homes is a whole different ballgame. Zillow was one of the first companies in America to essentially make it possible for people to browse and look for homes online. What that essentially allowed them to do was to gather all kinds of data and information about lots and lots of houses in America. And they've used that platform to expand into offering all kinds of real estate services. Alice Fullwood is our US finance correspondent. Three years ago, they dove even deeper into trying to intermediate transactions in the housing market by launching a business called Zillow Offers, a souped-up version of one of their products called The Zestimate. Any homeowner can go onto their website and see what their home might be worth, and people love this. Zillow Offers is essentially the company saying, you know, we trust in these estimates that we have of home prices so much that we're actually willing to buy a house at that price and flip it. It's that part of the business that seems to have fallen down around their ears. Can you talk us through what's happened? Two weeks ago, Zillow announced that it was halting home purchases through this Zillow Offers business. And at the time, they seemed to blame labour and supply shortages. But it transpires that the problem was much, much bigger than, than just that. And on an earnings call last week, the CEO of Zillow, Rich Barton, announced that actually he's going to shutter the Zillow Office business and stop operations entirely. We determined that further scaling up Zillow offers is too risky, too volatile to our earnings and operations, too low of a return on equity opportunity, and too narrow in its ability to serve our customers. A tough but necessary determination. That's a hugely dramatic admission of failure uh, on the part of a business that he originally predicted would 
be, you know, a, a flagship business for Zillow could bring in tens of billions of dollars of revenue. In the third quarter, uh, Zillow actually had to write off $300 million off of its inventories, and it expects to write off another sort of $260 million in the fourth quarter. This Zillow offers model is called iBuying and basically automating house flipping. So how does it work in theory? And how, how did it go so wrong when the housing market is booming? Yeah, it's a really good question. It seems like it's should be almost an impossible time to lose money buying and selling houses. The iBuyer model in general works by using big data, using information, particularly on houses that are very similar to the potential house that, that the iBuyer might buy, and looking at what they sold for recently. Um, they're called comps in the industry. And the goal of the iBuyers is not to, you know, buy up a load of houses and hold on to them and 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 treat them as sort of you know an asset investment. Uh, the goal is is to market make essentially. So they buy up these houses at a price that they think is close to the market value and then they flip them very, very quickly. It essentially requires the iBuyers to figure out with a high degree of precision what somebody's home is worth and also feel confident that they can sell it in a time frame in which they think they have some clarity over prices. But it's transpired that it's extremely difficult. What it boils down to is our inability to have confidence in pricing in the future, enough confidence to put our own capital at risk when we don't have to. How much of what Zillow's struggling with is due to the extraordinary circumstances of the past year? I mean, we've had the global pandemic, the housing market freeze, followed by a massive boom, and inflation appears to be on the rise. So are we seeing similar problems in other iBuyers? You know, it has been a really extraordinary time to have launched this iBuyer business. You know, you could look past this sort of short-term losses and think that maybe Zillow could could fix this business. On the other hand, other iBuyers don't necessarily appear to be suffering as seriously. So the major competitors are called Open Door and Offerpad. They actually both report earnings later today. So we'll have a bit more clarity on this question tomorrow. But they certainly don't seem to be in as much trouble. And in part, this seems to be because they grew more conservative earlier in the year as the sort of cyclical hotness in the housing market started to cool a little. Median existing home price sales rose 13.3% in September from a year earlier, which is very strong, but it's down from 23.6% year-over-year price growth in May. And what you've heard from the other iBuyers, Open Door, Offerpad and Redfin, is that they started to sort of mark down the prices they were willing to offer as of March or earlier this year. And Zillow actually sort of kept offering it very close to its model valuations. It was essentially overpaying. And huge numbers of homeowners hit that bid, essentially. Zillow bought 10,000 homes in the third quarter, which is five to 10 times as many as it bought in, in any other period. That is why they're having to sort of offload all of these homes at a loss. So Zillow shows an example of extreme bullishness on the housing market. I mean, does its fate hold lessons for other iBuyers? Are there limits to the power of using big data in the property market? One of the interesting things is that Zillow has so much information, arguably more information than anybody else about what homes are selling, what are the attributes of those homes. And so their failure to turn all of that informational advantage into ability to forecast short-term prices is pretty remarkable. And that does seem to vindicate in some way the idea that 
local knowledge and information, the sort of on the ground agents might have an edge when when pricing these homes. You could think of this as a, as a victory for sort of the, the shoe leather real estate agents. Having said that, you know, Zillow isn't the only big data player in this space and some of the others seem to have, have done a slightly better job of it. So it's possible that it's, it's more a sort of Zillow failing than a failure of big data in general. And a vindication for real estate agents. That's great. What, <laughs> what about the future for the rest of Zillow's activities? I mean, it's been a very rough year for Zillow. Its share price has fallen more than a third on this news. It's down by sort of half over the last year, although still higher than it was before the pandemic began. Closing Zillow offers is a is a big hit to the revenues for the company, but actually the business has never turned a profit. Uh, other lines of its business are a much sort of juicier uh, profit source for the company. Rich Barton, Zillow CEO, is known for kind of being quite an aggressive risk taker. Those bets have paid off pretty big in the past. Um, he founded Expedia and Glassdoor and sold both of those companies uh, for sort of very handsome sums. His aggressive risk taking on this gambit has not paid off at all, really. But that does sort of indicate that they are hot on the pursuit of, you know, the next thing. Zillow Offers was a business that helped sellers, people who were trying to sell their home, you know, do that more easily. The focus on the earnings call seemed to be shifted to how can they make it easier for buyers in this sort of hot real estate market. And the company is also going to have to come up with new ways to help people sell that aren't just offering to buy their home for them. Fascinating. Well, thanks very much indeed, Alice. Thank you for having me, Henry. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also write to us directly at podcasts at economist.com. The producer is Amika Shortina-Nolan. Nico Raufast is our sound engineer. The editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Henry Trix, and in London, this is The Economist. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.